I'm going to operate under the assumption that I don't have confetti on me. Um, if I do, please tell me. <laughs> I would rather just know. Um, I'll see it. Yeah, I'll see it on playback. Great. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, wear the birthday hat while I preach. Now, that thing would give me a rash, like right <laughs> along there. So, uh, back to Jesus. <laughs> Matthew uh, points out that Jesus, by this point, is in Caesarea Philippi. And in gospel writing, it is not like, not usually anyway, like writing a novel. Where in a novel, you fill in details to create color. You know, you, you, want, you want your reader to kind of be in that place, you know, mentally. Um, usually, in fact, almost always with gospel writing, because there are so few words that are being written, the details probably mean something. Um, it's not that we always know what those details mean, but it's always worth stopping and saying, why that detail? So Caesarea Philippi represents the northernmost point to which Jesus travels. And it, this creates, especially the interaction that he has with his disciples, creates a hinge point in his ministry. Uh, because from this point on, literally, everything will involve traveling in some way toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you know, the holy city, the place where the temple is, where Jesus is going to challenge the temple elite and for his efforts be executed uh, by the Roman Empire. So once he's at that northernmost point, the clock starts ticking. Uh, now, Jesus with his disciples... Um, I guess he decides to start asking some very pointed questions. And he, he doesn't say, if you notice, he didn't say, who do people say I am? Because that would have been too easy, too simple, too you know, easy to understand. But instead, he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? <laughs> I really wish he just said I. Um, Jesus refers to himself with that phrase, the Son of Man, quite a lot. It seems to be a favorite of his. And it's this open secret within New Testament studies that we don't actually, we don't know 100% what he means by that. There are some theories. Uh, none of them are um, universally accepted. I don't believe, at least last I checked, there's no real majority opinion. But it's a phrase that has echoes with uh, the prophet Daniel, if you're familiar with him, and with the prophet Ezekiel. And it, each uh, prophet in their own way, um, when they use the phrase son of man, um, seems to tie that with future hope. Uh, they, the, the, word, the phrase is tied with expectation of what God is eventually going to do for Israel. So at the very least, it's a very charged phrase. It's kind of like, you know, if it's 4th of July and somebody uses the phrase freedom and liberty. It, 
okay, you're talking about freedom and liberty, great, but it's 4th of July, and that historically, those ideas pulled together have some very strong echoes in the Revolutionary War and kind of the birth of our nation. It's kind of like that. You can kind of feel the weight of it, even if you can't immediately define it. Uh, Interestingly enough, among everything else that it might mean, uh, it probably is a reference to mortality. Sons and daughters, because that's how the language works, of men die. That's what we do. And um, as I turn 40 tomorrow, I've been thinking a lot about that, but, you know, whatever. It's funny, I've been joking about an existential crisis. There's a little truth to that, but it's fine. Um... So all that to say, when Jesus says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Yeah, he's referring to himself, but he's doing it in a very heavy way. Uh, a way that calls back the prophets, uh, and, and a way that raises this idea of mortality. And even if we can't necessarily say for certain what Jesus means, we can feel that a little bit. Now, the disciples have a very interesting list. Like Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of Israel, um, who lived a very tumultuous life and had, honestly, a very difficult career, uh, who challenged um, the ancient pagan prophets and the Canaanite fertility god Baal, uh, who did all kinds of other things and for his trouble ended up on on a mountain alone yelling at God, which I kind of appreciate. Um, Or John the Baptist, who, as we talked about a few weeks ago, was very likely Jesus' own rabbi, his teacher in some shape, way, or form, a relative of his with whom he was close, who had recently been executed. Now, they don't mean Jesus has been reincarnated as Elijah. That ain't what's going on here. Um... It would be maybe like, um, I don't know, if, if like a, a really solid, smart, but not like overly so, but just a very solid moral leader um, came to significance in America and we'd say, he's George Washington. No. I'm not saying George Washington was raised from the dead. I'm not saying he was reincarnated, but it's kind of that, that spirit of that idea. But at the very least, because and the disciples go on to name and a couple of other prophets, uh, Jeremiah being uniquely named here, Jesus is identified at least as a prophet. And a prophet's role is not to predict the future. You wouldn't want to go to a prophet and say, hey, tell me what tomorrow's lottery number, numbers are going to be. That's not how they work. Um, but a prophet will speak the heart of God to the people. He's God's mouthpiece. And uh, even if that message is going to be hard to hear, that's what he does. Uh, and Jesus is, is, is understood as a prophet. Some of the prophets actually worked miracles. So it makes sense that people would be thinking that a new prophet has arisen. And, and that's a big deal. That's important. But then Jesus shifts the conversation and he says, who do you say that I am? Now again, why would he ask that? 
Um, for starters, if he just told the people who he was, then that's his answer and not his disciples' answer. This is a very rabbinic way of teaching. It's one thing if I just tell you what to think. It's another thing entirely if I present to you what you need and then you come to those conclusions yourself. That answer is going to mean a lot more than it would have otherwise. But it also makes it personal. Um, it's, it, it's, um, I, I, I'm not going to do it to you, but uh, um, somebody that, a pastor that I worked with, and not that he ever watches this, but how high. Um, if somebody would say uh, to him, like, oh, good sermon today, pastor, he would, he just loved to do this. He would lean in and go, what was good about it? <laughs> Probably not a coincidence that he was also a licensed therapist. Um, <laughs> just heads up. Uh, it, it's honestly a brilliant question because now you got to get real personal. Because whatever you say, however you answer, is going to reflect something about the way the Word of God interacted with you in that moment. So it's a very disarming, it's a very vulnerable question. Now, enter Peter. I like Peter. Peter um, perpetually sticking his foot in his mouth. Um, as we learn, his father's name is Jonah, Jonah. Um, Peter also, he, his actual birth name or his Hebrew name is Shimon or, or Simon. Um, Jesus gives him the nickname Peter. And then just to make things complicated, um, Paul, the apostle, refers to Peter as Kephas or Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock. Greek is, uh, or uh, Peter is Greek for rock. <laughs> Names got complicated in the ancient world. A lot of people would have multiple names. Um, Peter steps up and he says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, I, I mean, I suspect Jesus would have been surprised. Um, Jesus has been pretty careful not to reveal exactly who he is. And actually, at the end of this conversation, it says he, he tells his disciples, don't say anything to anybody that I'm the Messiah. Which, now, that in itself raises all kinds of questions. Uh, we'll touch on that, but we're not going to focus there. Um, what an interesting way to say that, though. The Messiah... According to everything we know about that time and that area, um, the Messiah was not understood in any way to be divine, like as like the divine Son of God or something like that. And in fact, the phrase Son of God could, could be used in all kinds of ways, and it's often used just to refer to the children of Israel, like God's people. But here, Jesus seems to skirt that because it's pretty obvious that, th that this is a bold claim of divinity. Some very strong, close association with God the Father. It's one of the first moments where you start to realize, like, you know, other than his birth, <laughs> that wait, there's, 
there's something else going. This guy is not this guy is not just who he appears to be. Which is also weirdly like it it, it goes along weirdly with the idea that Jesus keeps referring to himself with a phrase that at least indicates mortality. Mortality, divinity, going hand in hand, and then knowing that from here on out the clock is ticking. Uh, Hopefully by now you can see that when we, we read this story of what could just be a simple interaction has some heft to it. Jesus is bringing together, just by asking a couple of questions, a lot. Jesus then um, singles Peter out, this time for a good reason, and, and he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Uh, curiously enough, the phrase flesh and blood, which we may, you know, you're my own flesh and blood or something like that, actually comes from this moment here. Uh, English is heavily influenced by the Bible. And uh, it, in other words, Jesus is saying, not only are you right, but Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. You're not that smart. Um, and then he gives Peter a job. And he gives him a new name. And his new name, as it turns out, is a pun. This is the first time in written history where the name Peter appears. He says, all right, you're Peter, Kephas, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my assembly, my gathering of God's people. Um. Historically, within the Catholic world, this was Peter's appointment to be basically the Pope, and then all the other popes kind of follow in line with him uh, and, and inherit his office. We're Lutherans, so I break out in hives when I say that, because um, I think there's actually something else there that's way deeper. That's going to be where we land, just a heads up, but we're not going to land there just yet. Um, I think it's best understood uh, that what Jesus is saying here is that, well, first off, you've got Peter, you're, you know, Peter, now your name is Peter, this is a rock, and that, that idea, that confession that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God, which were two separate things, are now united into this one guy, and that is going to form the, the cornerstone, the rock, the foundation on which everything else is built. And that has continued to this day. Um, and then from there, he says, don't tell anybody. Like, wouldn't that be the biggest news in the history of news? And I think the reason why he doesn't is that if the disciples on their way now down south, because Caesarea Philippi is Gentile country, but they'll be entering into the Jewish world again pretty soon, and they start making announcements that the Messiah has come, people are going to get violent. 
Because that was always their expectation. The Messiah was supposed to be this William Wallace type leader, um, a military type leader. Uh, People are going to project their expectations of who the Messiah is and what God is going to do for them onto Jesus. And I can tell you, after my four decades minus one day, (laughs) uh, projecting your expectations on God is going to lead to frustration (laughs) and just downright sadness. Now, we go back to that moment with Peter. Because even though I don't think what Jesus is trying to establish here is a role or an office of leadership, which is kind of the traditional Catholic interpretation, Jesus does, without a doubt, single out Peter as the leader of the disciples and of the earliest church. And we don't even need this moment to, to understand this because that's the role that Peter takes very clearly uh, throughout uh, the ends of the gospel uh, of the Gospels and then into the book of Acts, which is a chronicle of the earliest church. In other words, Jesus singles somebody out to be, uh, to be their leader because we, we need leadership in our lives, right? Like a church without leadership uh, can get pretty nutty pretty fast. And yet, Peter's track record as a leader is really interesting. Uh, Just the good parts. He makes some mistakes. We're not going to actually go there. Because on Pentecost, when Jesus, uh, well, Jesus had ascended to the Father, and then he says, wait in Jerusalem, somebody's coming. Turns out it's the Holy Spirit. And you have the birth of the church in this moment. Tongues of fire kind of fall from the sky, and all of a sudden these people start speaking other languages, and everyone's going, what is going on? And it's Peter that steps up and says, this is what God has promised this whole time. Here it is the presence of God dwelling in humanity. And then 3,000 people are baptized. Now, Peter was bold enough to stand up and preach. You think he was the only one baptizing? No, there's like 3,000 people. That would take forever. Like, you'd be sore by the end of that. Um, And then the early church, the earliest church, like within the days and weeks that follow, Uh, Peter and the earliest Christians are going to come in serious conflict with the temple leadership. And Peter is is the leader. He's the spokesperson, and he's never alone. There's always somebody with him, and it's usually John. As Peter uh, and John work together, even though Peter is obviously the leader, um, John plays an incredibly important role. And then over time, as Peter travels, as Peter learns, as the Holy Spirit kind of blows all of his categories out of the water, Peter doesn't do anything by himself. The genius 
of what Jesus establishes when he establishes the first moments of leadership of this ragtag following is that there's no such thing as absolute authority. There is at no point in time any reason for you to be alone. God does not call us, even in the big things, to go off by ourselves and accomplish them. The genius of what Jesus establishes here in this moment, when he says, you're Peter and on this rock I will build the foundations of church, assembly of God's people, however you want to translate that, is that he establishes a community that just so happens to have a leader, not a leader around which a community forms. Um, And I think this is a really important lesson for us to learn and relearn. Not necessarily at Christ Lutheran, but I think nationally you've got a lot of very prominent pastors who seem to seem to like that kind of power. I could name names, but I don't want to get sued. Um, but that's the beauty of, of the way of Jesus. Is that when, when after Jesus has this really weird conversation with his disciples up in Caesarea Philippi, he's going to go down uh, to Jerusalem with his disciples. It's his disciples that scatter, and we find out pretty quickly they scatter together. And it's only Jesus that is left alone. It's only him that faces everything alone. And it's only him that goes to his grave in that moment even in the moment of resurrection and when first the women and then the disciples find that Jesus has been raised from the dead, doesn't really happen by themselves. Yeah, Peter runs into the tomb, but John's right there. Jesus has a long, weird conversation with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus after he was raised from the dead. There's at least two. And so in a very real, actually oddly practical way, when Jesus dies for the sins of the world and dies for our mortality, he fulfills what it means to be a son of man and then with God, or by the power of God, is raised from the dead. He has now established this community that means you are not alone. There is no reason for you to go through whatever it is you are going through alone. There is no reason for leadership to maintain soul power. There is no reason for any single person to even have the authority because if Peter didn't have it, why should I or anybody else? That's the beauty of it. God doesn't establish a hierarchy. He establishes a collaboration. And that collaboration is what started in Jerusalem and spread to the rest of, of, of the human race. So as we now continue in our church year, as we're entering into fall and now we're going to start looking towards Christmas and then eventually towards Easter, 
And as we start looking into kind of the school year as it's starting up and the ministry year-ish, like the, the, the ministry works because God's Spirit works in us. It is a community. It is a group. And whatever it is that God, by His grace, allows us to accomplish, it's accomplished together. Whatever it is that you are going through, if you feel like you are limping along in life, then God's charge is that we limp together. And that, that is such a beautiful thing when God builds His community of His people around His Son. Amen. Uh, I invite you to rise as you are able.